Hey guys, it's uh, Elliot Kipling here from Engineers. Welcome back. We've got Alan Rona here. Uh, Alan has uh, co-founded a business previously that I'm sure you guys will know, Circle CI. He's also uh, co-founded a business, Griffin, who we're going to talk about today. So, Alan, say hello. Do you want to give yeah, us a little hi. intro into you? <laughs> yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, yeah, so I've been doing startups for more than a decade now. Um, had a little thing before Circle. It didn't go anywhere. Um, Co-founded Circle in 2011. Uh, I was there until 2014. Uh, and then since about 2017, 2018, I've been working on Griffin. Nice. Okay. Um, before we go into Griffin, you know, London-based, we can talk about some of the challenges that you've got in banking, etc., Talk to us about the experience at Circle CI because this is going to be tooling that a lot of guys and girls listening to this podcast that have used um, that understand. So, can you talk to us a little bit about that and maybe your mindset sure. in 2011? <laughs> sure. Uh, so, in, t- in 2011, I didn't know anything. Um, <laughs> so, started this. I mean, I know more now, but I wouldn't say I know everything. Uh, uh, yeah. So, CircleCI is a hosted continuous integration and deployment. Uh, I guess it, it started from my own need at my previous startup, um, which was that, so at the time, GitHub was just starting to become a thing. And, you know, AWS in the cloud was just starting to become a thing. And so I was, you know, doing the modern best practices of, you know, GitHub and pull requests and then continuous integration, and then deploy to the cloud. But at the time, uh, CI was Jenkins, or was it was something, be, Hudson was the name before that. Yeah. And I had to install it on a box that was sitting under my desk. And I thought, well, this is stupid. You know, GitHub's in the cloud, AWS is in the cloud, but in the middle, it has to go under my desk to run tests. Yeah. So I thought it was a good idea. Um, moved to San Francisco and just started doing it. Um, say, you know, the, the tools at the time were not, very good, you know, so like Ruby Bundler was new. Uh, There was no Docker, there was no Kubernetes. Uh, AWS was, you know, EC2, so there's no no Beanstalk, no EKS, no um, Fargate, no Lambda, no serverless. Yeah. Um, So I'd say a lot of the pain was just working through the tools and then me not understanding, you know, distributed systems and what it actually means to run a business at scale. So a lot of it was just learning, learning how to scale up something that was uh, computationally intensive and had a lot of, you know, reliability uh, requirements, uh, I'd say learning it the hard way. Okay. Well, what did you learn about building a business at scale? That's probably a fairly off the fly question, but what what are some of the standout points that you think I would definitely apply that again? given the opportunity, hopefully with Griffin? Um, so I'd say market size is a big one. Um, so I, th- I think I learned from a Hacker News comment once, which is that basically all startups are the same level of difficulty, which it, it's not, that's not 100% true. Sorry, I have to let the dog out. Yeah, that's it's not 100% true, but you know, you're going to spend 100% of your time and effort for the next four years on a project. And so it doesn't really matter you know, whether it's a, you know, to-do list or, you know, a bank, 
you're going to spend 100% of your time on it. So therefore, you should pick something that uh, is going to reward you for the effort. Um, I'd say a lot of the things I learned about from market side, like you go from market to demand. So like make sure make sure there's enough people out there who are willing to pay money for the thing. Okay. Um, and then, you know, build something that people want, you know, just the standard YC advice, but it's true and it's hard to make that simpler. Yeah. Um, get something into people's hands as quickly as you can and uh, one thing I noticed was that, you know, we had a bunch of beta users who were using the system for free. And, you know, we'd ask them, oh, how do you like it? You know, and they're like, oh, it's great. You know, love everything about it. Keep doing it. And then one day we said, you know, starting next week, we're going to start charging your credit cards. Yeah. And they went from everything's perfect to like, here's a hundred bullet points of things you need to fix. And so that, that was like where the rubber met the road and you get significantly more clear feedback as soon as you try to start charging people. I was, I was just about to say, uh, how do you find out what people need? Sorry, find out the demand and then find out that pricing. There, there's going to be mm -hmm. a big gap in between where, like you say, people start to become unhappy with yeah. what you're actually building. Yeah, that's, um, that's a hard art in itself. Um, kind of the... You can kind of t think about the size of the pain point, and then you think about how much you can charge them and who are you charging. So, you know, um, if you're charging for a mobile game, you know, so individual purchases, you know, your price is going to be, you know, either free or, you know, call it up to 60 pounds if you're doing a, you know, triple A game, but you're not because you're, you know, one or two people. But then you get, a, you know, and then there's kind of a sliding scale of, you know, things you charge, you can get an individual to pay 50 or hundred bucks a month. And then you get into like selling to small businesses and selling to large businesses. And the important thing to remember there is that the buyer changes, especially going from consumer to businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if you imagine if you're selling to startups, you know, you can charge, you know, to a, a team of 10 people, you say like, oh, you know, 50 bucks a month on your credit card, fine. Yeah. But then if you get into like these massive enterprise deals where you're charging like a million dollars a year, suddenly there's this whole org chart that you have to understand and you have to, and the user and the person with purchasing authority and the purchasing person paying it for the product are all different. Yeah. And so like enterprise sales is very difficult because your, your salesperson has to go in and understand the structure of the company. And they have to say, okay, who, who are all the people involved and what are their motivations? Yeah. You know, cause the person paying for it, isn't the person who actually feels the pain. And yeah. so there's, that's a whole other struggle. Yeah. So I would, I, for startups, I would say this, the sweet spot is sell to small startups that are, that are growing. You know, so like with Circle, our original customers were startups that were about the same size as us. You know, so we were, you know, two guys in San Francisco and our initial customers were San Francisco startups that were two to 20 people. Yeah. And then as we grow, you know, our customers grow and then both sides can kind of mature in the sales process at the same time. Nice. Okay. Uh, 
I think you hit the nail on the head really with the motivations part and understanding the whys. Um, like you say, someone paying for the product, someone using the product, two different things. Right. Okay. And th there are pains that not everything is easy to solve. Like just because there is a pain point doesn't mean that someone will pay for that. Um, so the great example I love to use is paying for coffee. Like if you're a coffee drinker, you don't even, you don't make a choice to say like, am I going to buy coffee today? Like you're just, yes, that's going to happen. Yeah. But then try to get somebody to pay $5 for a mobile game or whatever, some iPhone app. Yeah. There's all kinds of, oh, $5 is a lot on the app store. It's like, you did not think about the price of coffee today. And then you're going to go into this whole decision-making process of, do I really need this five pound app? So it's, true. Yeah. So I had a, as, as an example of that, I had a startup idea that I couldn't go, I couldn't convince anyone to buy, um, which was a website performance monitoring. Okay. And that I, you can find all kinds of evidence for, um, like you go to like Walmart and all these major um, brand names yep. and Amazon, they have extremely good metrics that the, the speed of your website will directly affect conversion rates. Okay. And to the point where like walmart.com can make like 20% more money if they make their pages just a little bit faster. Okay. And so I was, and the, the empirical research on this is very good. And so I was trying to make a startup that would, you know, measure. A little your, bit like your, app dynamics for websites. Yeah. Yeah. And say, and then, you know, give you, sorry, my monitor is, there we go. Okay. Um, so it, it measure the performance of a website um, on page load times and then tell you how to improve it, which would directly lead to conversions. And like, I'm quite convinced that pain is real. I'm quite convinced you could make companies could make a whole lot of money if they made their websites faster, but finding the set of buyers and payers was just a complete nightmare. How, because how the, oh, yeah, sorry. sorry, no, 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 please carry on. Um, so the problem there is that in most startups, the engineers in startups big enough to be worth paying for this, the engineers would know it's a problem, but they're not motivated to improve sales. Okay. And then marketing maybe doesn't believe me that there's a problem or they're not convinced or so like the problem is real, but you need to find the right set of conditions where somebody's willing to pay for that. What, what, what is that difference in speed that could generate 20% more revenue? Do, do you know that figure? Only because that that's a lot. 20% is a yeah. lot. Um, I'd have to go pull out my notes, but I, I want to say that page load times should be under a second. And a lot of e-commerce sites are in the like five second range. Okay. You know, so just, and for the most part, you don't need any, special tricks it's mostly just doing the things that we already know how to do you know cdns and compress your javascript and minimize your javascript and you know all that kind of stuff okay um moving on to more startups then um sure. you've got bundles of ideas in that head i love <laughs> it um talk to us a little bit about griffin give us any intro sure. into griffin uh, and what sort of challenges you're trying to solve in what's commonly described as a fairly fractured finance and banking industry. Sure. Um, so Griffin, we are trying to become a, a UK bank. Um, 
and the goal is that we would be the bank for fintechs. Um, so kind of, we kind of have to talk about the law a little bit here. Um, so by law, um, anytime an, uh, a company wants to hold customer money, eventually that money has to be held at a bank. So if you're a, if you're a startup that wants to do like, you know, the next Tide or the next Anna or a prepaid card startup or um, retirement accounts, I guess you call them pension accounts here, uh -huh. um, FX, like any, any kind of startup that wants to touch or hold customer money, uh, the money ha eventually has to be end up at a bank. You know, you can in the UK there's um, EMIs and PIs, but by law they they have to keep the money at the bank, and the banks are uniformly terrible to work with. Uh, most of them don't have very good APIs. Most of them don't have you know, modern technology. Uh, it's very difficult for them to say to even get a bank account in many cases. Uh -huh. I think Griffin personally, we spent something like eight months trying to get a UK bank account and the bank account we currently have, we can't keep once we become a bank. Okay. So, uh, so the idea is we will do, we will take care of all of that for you and kind of be kind of like a, kind of a mix between, you know, Stripe and AWS, but for FinTechs. So, uh, API first, you know, online only, modern best practices on the API side. Um, and then uh, integrated compliance, which sounds really boring, but that's kind of one of the ways we think we have, we can fix this problem. Yeah. Uh, sorry, more legal background. The way, so if you, if, if you have a, um, let's say you have a FinTech and we'll, we'll We'll say you want to do the next tide, you know, like a mobile app that has a digital current account. Uh -huh. The way, um, so I'll, I'll say tide, but like you can imagine, you know, or the next Revolut, you know, it's the same kind of deal. Yeah. Um, typically what the big banks will give you is a single pooled account. And so then that means that all of tide, your, you know, your 10,000 customers, all of their money will live in the same big, big, in the same pooled account at, you know, Barclays or whoever. Okay. And so then that means you need to build a ledger to keep, you know, to say that your money is separate from my money. And then the other big th risk factor here, and that takes a lot of time and money. Um, I was consulting for a company once where they spent uh, like 3 million pounds building their own ledger to handle, you know, a couple thousand transactions per second at scale. Okay. Um, so going back to compliance and you have this single pooled account, um, the other big thing that uh, banks are responsible for is uh, money laundering and make sh making sure that nobody sending or receiving money is on the you know the terrorist watch list or yeah. anything like that. So there's a process they call it KYC, where you have to verify the identity of every customer. And so the big banks can do this, but it's a very expensive, and they might charge like a hundred pounds each. You know, so if you have your ten thousand customers, you know, as a fintech, you don't want to pay that bill. Uh -huh. So then the bank says, okay, you, the FinTech can do it. Here's our 500 pages of procedures and policy on how to do, how to do this. So then the FinTech starts doing that. Um, but the problem is the big banks, uh, fraud and risk algorithms aren't really set up for FinTechs. They're still set up for, you know, 30 years ago where you'd have individual retail accounts. So in inevitably what happens here is the FinTech, um, 
you know, if they're successful, they have a big spike in, you know, transaction volumes and new, new cases. And then that triggers the bank's fraud and risk algorithms. Yeah. The big bank gets twitchy because uh, by law, the bank is not allowed to delegate its responsibility for compliance. So if the fintech screws anything up, the bank gets in trouble with the regulators. Yeah. The bank doesn't want to get in trouble, so then they they de-risk the fintech off the platform. Yeah. So one of the ways we think we can solve this problem is if we we design the system so that we can give the fintech you know a, an individual account for each of the fintech's customers. Yeah. And then we will do KYC and compliance. And so we can verify all of the fintech's customers are, you know, we can verify all their identities and make sure uh, nothing illegal is happening. Yeah. And we think we can do that, you know, if we use the modern um, reg techs, you know, so kind of like the same kind of system that Monzo is using. Yeah. If we apply that and we have visibility into all the fintech's customers, then we can onboard fintech's significantly faster and cheaper than the big banks do. And then because we know rather than everybody's money being pooled together, they're all segregated, we can say, we don't like that one customer. And so we can kick off okay. you know, individual FinTech customers without having to kick everyone off the platform. Okay. Uh, I, in my head, I quite like to think of you guys as like a banking platform as a service and authentication coupled in there. Um, So I think that's probably my simplified mind. With building those, if I've heard this correctly, with building those individual ledgers from those pools that the banks create, how difficult is that to do that? Um, It depends on scale. So, you know, if you say, I want to build a ledger, you know, you can do that in an afternoon using Postgres. Fine. The the hard part is kind of the scalability and operations side of it, you know. And then if depending on your business model, you might need serious scale. Okay. Um, so on the reliability side, it's you know you need to make sure you have backups in multiple regions. Uh, you know you need to make sure you're you have ninety nine point nine nine whatever percent uptime, uh, and then skip. So scale, uh, I was consulting for a fintech once and because of their business model, uh, they were, they were a peer to peer lender and they would, you know, you'd have a loan on one side and then you'd have, uh, investors who would might be, you know, pensioners or sometimes just wealthy people who wanted to return on their money. So you don't want a single pensioner to own, you know, a hundred percent of a loan for, you know, a restaurant kitchen. Yeah. So they would diversify it. So they'd have. You know, a thousand pensioners would each own 0.1%. Okay. And so then, and then they would have, you know, 10 or 20,000 outstanding loans at a time. So then every month you'd have 10,000 loan payments coming in. And then each one of those would be sharded twice. Um, so you'd have 2,000 transactions out. So you'd principal and interest for each one of the investors. Okay. And so this just created massive database load. So they had to handle, you know, thousands of transactions a second. And those are exactly the kind of customers we want to take on at Griffin. And if they had to spend, you know, significant time and resources getting to that scale and they are one customer, we want to do that for, you know, dozens or hundreds of customers like that. So that's the challenge isn't just having a ledger. It's having a ledger that is backed up and secure and reliable and scalable all at the same time. 
Okay, and and banks pay you for this service? Uh, banks typically build their own, um, or you know they get it from a core banking vendor. Okay. No. So um, I would say I would say it's more often that they, the old banks bought most of theirs, and then the newer banks like you know Tide and probably Starling uh, built their own. Would be my guess. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the the technology that you're building and how sure. that might work? You're talking about uh, multi-regions important, scalability is important, but talk to us about maybe some of the technology and what you're sure. actually building. Um, so we are 100% Closure Shop. Um, the technology is Closure, Kafka, Datomic, AWS, Kubernetes. Um, I've been using Clojure since pre-1.0, mostly just because I like it. Um, yeah. Circle is written in Clojure. Um, Griffin is written in Clojure. Uh, so Kafka is our um, primary data source. It's, you know, it's the source of truth. And this goes back to the scalability thing. Um, so one of, the, one of the great things about Kafka is that uh, so dealing, de the setup of dealing with topics and partitions is annoying, but once you get it correct, you can say, oh, I need more parallelism on payments or whatever. And so, excuse me. So you can go from, you know, 10 partitions to 100 partitions and everything will, uh, should just be correct and it should just work. Okay. Um, yeah, so in terms of scalability and replication, so Kafka is great because you, know, you can have multiple brokers holding your data. You can do hot replicas. You can, at, sorry, just take a step back. At the end of the day, everything is just a closure map and it's a closure event. And then there's a, there are, you know topics. So then it's easy to back up and restore just a sequence of events. And we can know that we have all of them. Nice. Um, it's easy to replicate them into another region. It's easy to, you know, back up the whole stream on S3 and then, you know, um, you get failover pretty, pretty easily because, uh, you'll, you know, you'll have a broker hosting multiple topics and multiple partitions. And then the closure code are these little, we call them log processors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have, if you have five of them running and there are 10 partitions, then great. Each one takes two, par two partitions each. But if you, um, you can add more closure processes and you'll get things a little bit faster, or you can just, um, uh, yeah, if one of them fails, then it'll take over automatically. Yeah. It's, it, it buys us a lot of great things. Nice. Okay. Uh, any other considerations, uh, I guess, in terms of languages, or were you just thinking, nope, th this is a hundred percent closure. I know what I'm doing. That's what I'm going for. Uh, Mostly, yeah. Um, if we have some performance sensitive code, I would probably look at Rust. Um, and I, I know that uh, some some other uh, UK fintechs are looking in that space. There was a there was a nasty issue with um, one of the banks running at, with FPS a year or two ago, where I I don't remember the exact details. Um, the the reports are on it are public. Um, but um, FPS, the wire protocol, is pretty gnarly compared to you know 2020 best practices. So it's it's a binary protocol. It's TCP based. You know, so like 
and then they specify you must have this many um, TCP sessions open, and this session will read messages and it'll write messages. And so it, it basically has to be native code. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right, there was some C code that was being called by Java. And so the bank thought that everything was fine because you know, their Java code was correct, but there was a subtle mem memory corruption issue in the C code and that was causing, uh, causing them to get uh, some bad um, concurrency problems. So, uh, so something like Rust where you get memory safety and speed is uh, compelling. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've heard the same, actually. We've done a, a really similar podcast previously um, where some guys in the open banking space, you know, they built some of their services in Rust, um, which which I thought was quite interesting. What, what technical challenges um, with the, the banks or with Griffin do you foresee that, that you're thinking into maybe a technical roadmap? Um, reliability is the big one. Um, the, so I would say, you know, the, the, the banking regulators, their number one job is to make sure that the banks don't fail and the consumers don't get harmed. And I'd say, so it's, well, I don't want to, so, you know, coming very closely behind making sure the financial system doesn't fail is making sure individual banks don't have significant downtime. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause banks having downtime is extremely bad. You know, your, your cards don't swipe, you know, people can't get on the tube. They can't buy gas. They can't pay rent. Like it's extremely bad. So that means that, you know, we're, we're preparing to go live with, ideally at the end of next year. And I think we'll have 20 or 30 engineers at that point. And so we need to be significantly more reliable than you would expect from a company with 20 engineers. So uh, security has to be good. You know, security has to, everything, everything has to be much more mature. So you'd have to have very good security, very good reliability, very, you know, backups, uh, multi-region failover, you know, 99% uptime. Like you know, several nines of time. Okay. Uh, so just, but then of course you're a startup, so you still have to ship code. So you know, if we if we get everything released and then every, you know our processes are so slow that we never release a new feature, that would also be could threaten you know the existence of the business. So you need a very small. You have a small number of engineers, and you need to get everything right, and you need to ship new features. And so that combination is pretty challenging. How uh, and what what sort of processes do you think you might introduce to make sure that you can do that? I'm sure you've done similar things in the past. Yeah, um, a lot of it comes down to testing. Actually, it's just testing and a, a strong continuous deployment pipeline. So, you know, the system has to be designed for testability. Um, at, at, at the start because, um, so actually Kafka is, um, buys us a lot there. So the entire system is just a stream of event of events. So we have dozens of these little closure, um, log processors or procs for short, uh -huh. that just take an event and, um, emit events. So unit testing is very easy because you can just 
give a little proc a stream of events and say, here are all the input events, here are all the output events. Uh-huh. And so it's it's pure, it's stateless, it's fast. Um, it's fast because we don't even touch Kafka at that point. These are just uh, closure transducers, if you know what that is. Um, so for, for the non-closurists here, it's you can imagine like um, map filter and reduce, uh, you know, the standard kind of functional programming things. You know, normally it, it takes a list and returns a list or, you know, or takes a vector and returns a vector. You know, it's a concrete data structure. Uh, closure transducers are the same idea, but you, you abstract away the idea of a list or a vector. So it's just, it doesn't matter what the input source is and it doesn't matter what the output source is. Like the important part of map is, you know, n messages come in, I run my my mapping function on each of the n events and then I return n output messages. So once you have closure transducers, you don't have to, you no longer have to go from list to list. You can just say, I want to use um, um, core async channels, which are kind of like Go routines, or in our case, we just plugged in Kafka. So in production, you have a stream of events coming from Kafka and the stream of events going to Kafka. But then in testing, we can replace all of that with just in-memory data structures. So okay. super. So that means we don't have to stub anything. It's just closure maps or list of closure events, run the transducer, list of output events. It's very fast. It's very clean. Um, so going back to design for testability. So we do that. A lot of generative tests. Um, just another, I think this started in Haskell, but it's been ported to Clojure. If it's in your language, you should look into it. The idea is, um, you know, if you think of like a function, you know, let's say square root, you know, it's like take a number, return a number. And then you can declare that in your type signature. You know, this function takes takes a number and returns a number. So in generative testing, you say, hmm, any number? So you have so the generative tests know how to generate new data of that type. So like on a number, it's just I'm going to generate any random number, and then I'm going to you know your type signature says you take any number and you return any number. So I'm just going to generate a whole bunch of random data, and then if at any point it doesn't have, it doesn't uh, satisfy the contract, uh, it does a thing called shrinking, which you need if you if your tests are any kind of heavy if you have any kind of size on your tests. So it says, okay, the random sequence X, Y, Z resulted in an exception being thrown. And so then it tries to shrink the data to the smallest test case that will still make it break. Um, so gender testing is great. Highly recommend you look into it. Um, and so that's all on the CI side. And then once we have a green build, then uh, deploy to staging. And then in staging, we run a bunch of other tests that don't really fit for unit tests. So we do um, Jepson testing, uh, which is another thing you should look into. So um, jepsen.io, I think. Okay. Uh, it's this closure guy who's an expert on distributed systems. Okay. And you know, you'll have Mongo or MySQL or whoever, um, or Kafka or Postgres, any any distributed data store, they, you know, they'll announce, oh, we have this new feature with, you know, um, um, you know, read replication, for example, and they say, you know, will, you know, if you have a core, if you have a five-node cluster, it'll survive a loss of two nodes. And uh, this guy Afir goes, really? And so we'll set up a little cluster of um, 
five VMs, you know, set up everything the way the documentation describes, and then he'll start messing with the cluster. So, you know, send a bunch of traffic th through this database and then just start turning off nodes. Or um, sometimes the, um, the consensus algorithm is time-based and so it'll say, oh, well, I'll just turn the clock on one of these VMs 24 hours forward and I'll turn it 24 hours back and see what happens. Nice. And then, and then at the end of that, you build a model and you say, okay, well, I sent these input read and write events and I would expect these output events based on how the system is supposed to work. But what I actually got was this other thing. And so you kind of have this, you build this correctness model of what you expect to get and what you actually get and then say, okay, the system breaks if you do this thing. And so there's, there are all kinds of, it's kind of like um, chaos engineering. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it's kind of like chaos engineering, but you have like an expectation of what the system should do. Uh, so you really are a closureist, aren't you? You're a true one. <laughs> yeah, um, it's been my primary language for more than a decade now. Nice. So uh, summarizing that, I think good automated workflow, you know, is mm -hmm. really, really, really key for you guys. Yeah. Some good process and good principles to ensure that fast delivery as a startup, yeah. it's key. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would say, I. You have to lean on, on this kind of thing, you have to lean on the automated tools because humans are fallible and they're not really scalable. You know, so right now we have 130,000 lines of closure and, you know, a good developer can write tens of thousands of lines a year. And, we're, you know, we're going to be 20 or 30 developers this time next year. And, you know, if everything goes well in five or 10 years, we'll have millions of lines of code. You know, you can't, a human, uh, code you should do code review and it's absolutely good, but it's, you can't assume that it will catch all bugs. Okay. And so you just, you have to keep increasing your testing. Okay. Uh, and is that something that you embedded in Circle CI quite early on as well? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we were doing the testing. I would say the other thing that I learned uh, while I was there is that incremental deployments are also extremely valuable. So, uh, you know, if you have, let's say your, your production cluster is 100 machines, uh, flipping all, all of your 100 machines to the new code all at once is uh, risky and ill-advised. Yeah. <laughs> so, because, uh, you know, inevitably there will be things that your tests don't catch. And so if there is, uh, if there is an issue that your tests don't catch, uh, it would be better if you, if it impacted a smaller percentage of your customers than all of them all at once. Uh, so one risk, rule number one. Yeah. And even, even aside from um, harming the customers, one of the f fun things you get, you see is that sometimes problems get worse because you've, flipped all the machines on all at once. So instead do um, incremental rollout, you know, so maybe deploy, deploy your new code to one of the hundred production machines and let it run for an hour uh -huh. and watch the alerts. And okay, if that works, okay, roll it out to 10 more machines, watch that. And then, you know, slowly roll it out all the way across the board. Uh, your other option there is feature flags where once just because you have new code doesn't mean it has to 
let's say you wrote new code with new features in it. Yeah. Just because the new code is rolled rolled out doesn't mean that your customers have to see the new feature. So you have a little flag that says, you know, do I show this new, you know, do I put the new feature on the the UI? You know, is the new button there? Okay. And then you can do all kinds of fun things. So you can roll it out and then say only users who are logged in as you know internal employees get to see the button and you can run that for a month you know and then you have your list of external customers who've signed up to be beta testers so you can you can look at their email addresses and tie you know does the does the customer get to see the new button and you can do it on a per account basis that's yeah. really useful as well uh, for for the non-closureists who are listening um, you guys want to scale up, you know, for the next 12 months. Do they need to come from a closure background? If not, what, what sort of engineering, let's just say mindset, languages, environments have these people preferably come from? Sure. Um, yeah, so let's say we are, we are hiring uh, and we'll be hiring forever, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, we, are, we are hiring like continuously for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah, so when I, mean, when I started Circle in 2011, there were no production closure jobs. You know, it wasn't an option. Uh, so, I, you know, I'd say we're, we're experienced at hiring non-closurists. There's a lot more professional closure out there now, but it's still somewhat niche, and that's actually something of an advantage. Uh, in terms of hiring, I would say the biggest thing we look for is uh, curiosity and desire to learn, you know, closure or other weird functional languages. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, people who've, you know, learned Scheme or Haskell or Erlang or, you know, anything else weird and random like that. Uh, the other big thing we look for is uh, distributed systems experience. Yeah. Uh, because of this, this Kafka architecture is quite novel um, and you know we all have the intuition of like how to set up a normal web-based uh, um, a web app you know using Postgres you know it's like oh yeah you know there's going to be a users table and there's going to be a whatever table like that, that intuition is pretty well established at this point and with this Kafka stuff it's quite new and it, you know it took me a couple months to get my head around it so the distributed systems knowledge is really useful for things like, you know, if I pass a message from, you know, this proc to this proc to this proc, what are the, uh, what are the, what are the properties of, in terms of liveness and eventual consistency? And um, does this system require, you know, what, what is, what consistency level does this flow require? You know, if uh, let's say it's, user credentials and we create a new user in the system, like how long, what are the, what are the message flows before the user is able to log in? And then if we disable their account, what, how long are they allowed to log, still allowed to log in before everything takes effect? And so then, you know, sometimes you care and sometimes you don't. And so having a good intuition on that is good. Okay. Um, multi-region experience, nice. Do you think at some point you guys might consider trailing outside of the UK? We would like to. Um, our initial focus is on the UK, um, but you know, yeah, we would we would like to be able to solve 
this kind of problem in you know, a lot of countries. Okay. Um, picking up on what you said earlier about enterprise sales and mm -hmm. banking's archaic, uh, have you got have you got problems? I wouldn't say sussed out, um, but are you anticipating there to be some challenges around how you actually integrate and work closely with banks? Do you think there's going to be some reticence to what you guys are building? Um, probably not. So, and I, that kind of come, well, I don't want to make it sound easy, but um, in enterprise sales, there are easier and harder deals. You know, so you, you can imagine, um, let's say something like CircleCI on enterprise sale. You know, in this case, you would say the develop, you know, developers would go to their boss and say, I want to spend X, you know. And so, in or actually the, the, the classic example is like companies that treat where they think of like, I have a profit center and a cost center. You never want to sell to a cost center. Like that is a terrible, hard business to be in because the company doesn't even want that department. And so they think I'm going to spend as little money as possible on, on that. So if you, if you, if you are selling to a specific department in a company, it's better to sell to the profit center yeah. and it's even better to sell to the CEO. So like the, the person, whenever, whenever possible you want the person with purchasing authority to be the person who feels the need um, and has the budget. So with the, with the bank and fintechs, uh, we think the problem will be a little bit easier than some other kinds of enterprise deals because the CXOs will feel the pain and CXOs have the budget authority. Um, so, uh, and we don't think this will be a, hmm. I'll try to figure out how to phrase this. Um, we know we can't close everyone all at once. Um, you know, so our initial customers will probably be FinTech startups, you know, um, FinTechs who've just raised money and uh, need a banking partner to get started. The, the larger companies will come, you know, as they feel the pain and as, as we get more, as Griffin gets more mature and more able to handle all, all their quirky use cases. Okay. Um, you know, we spoke earlier as well about, um, you know, there's been terrorist groups that obviously operate for fraudulent behavior. Well, where does that reliability and ownership come? when um, you're obviously doing this authentication piece for banks, where does the reliability and ownership piece if something comes? Uh, so actually, we, we are doing it for the fintech because we are the sorry, bank. Fin sorry, that's what I meant, yeah. fintech. Um, so the law is, the, the, the banking regulations say that the bank is always responsible. And in some cases, both sides are responsible. But importantly, we the bank can never delegate it to the fintech. So we have to do this. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so we'll, we, we'll have integrated transaction, integrated onboarding, integrated transaction screening, integrated transaction monitoring. Um, sorry, I'm not sure I'm, I answered that fully. 
was there anything else? Was there another part of that question that I didn't answer? No, no, I think you're good. Okay. I think you're good. I, I was just talking in terms of um, the reliability and the ownership piece. Mm -hmm. you know, who does that fall down to? Which side? Um, mm -hmm. No, but I think you did absolutely fine. Nice. Yeah. The, I guess one of the core theses behind Griffin is that lots of companies want to offer financial services and they're not just fintechs, you know, so, you, you know, every once in a while you'll hear, uh, you know, Google and Amazon and Walmart all want to get into banking. Um, but in the U.S. at least, they can't because uh, if you own more than 10% of a bank, you are now a bank holding company and a bank holding company gets regulated as if it was a bank. And I think that happens in the UK as well. But anyway, like you know, a company like, yeah, a company like Google doesn't want to become a bank. Like they know, you know, their business is in ads. So really they want the data. And so um, after, you know, after we have fintechs sorted, we want to do this kind of banking as a service for non-fintech startups or non-fintech startup companies, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, someone, you know, a Google and Amazon or whatever, um, they don't want to know about financial regulations. And so we, we kind of think of, we will handle that for you. We know, we know what all the rules are and we will define the API so that you can only do uh, the things you're supposed to do. Nice. Okay. Um, in terms of, I think, summarizing some of the piece for non-closurists or closurists, um, if you want to step into an environment that has some interesting Kafka architecture, distributed systems, smart automated workflow, fast deployments, come and talk to these guys. Okay. Yeah. London-based, would you look at remote people? Yes, um, we are. Uh, yeah, we've always been. We were we were remote friendly even before um, COVID. Uh, we're hiring in UK, Ireland, and anywhere that Boundless supports. Boundless is one of those PEO things that we use. So, um, yeah, we're we're hiring for backend engineering, front end engineering, which is like Clojure and Clojure scripts and you know browsers and that kind of thing, and then um, DevOps infrastructure SRE, whatever you want to call that role. Nice. Um, so if yeah, you're we have thing. Reach out to Alan, reach out to any of the guys and girls in the business, check out their pages, drop the guys a know, you know where to go. <laughs> um, have you got anything else that you want to share with us uh, at all mm -hmm. that gives more context on Griffin, any advice points, maybe where to go and learn closure, anything that you want to share? Mm. With us? There's so many so many different ways to take that. I don't know which one to answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I typically do that. I usually ask two or three questions at once. Sorry. No, um, no, nothing really comes to mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, good. Okay. Um, like, share, comment, and retweet, rehash, all of the buzzwords when it comes to social. Um, check out the guys. 
griffin.sh. Check out Alan. Drop the guys a note. If you're interested in hearing a little bit more about uh, what the guys are doing, obviously follow their website, follow their careers page. And Alan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for sharing some of your stories with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, Massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.